Addiction is a global pandemic. Drugs, alcohol, sex, cigarettes or sugar. Pick your vice. Why do we treat drug addicts as criminals instead of patients who need curing? Surely the war on drugs is lost. From Reagan to Trump, the usage, importation and death toll from illegal drug use has increased and continues to do so. Why when we know the consequences? Ironically, after years of epic dinner parties, long lunches and perhaps too many boozy brunches, we bring you Shaken and Stirred. Or rather, we are Shaken and Stirred. In fact, be prepared to be both shaken and stirred. It's very technical. It's very technical here on Shaken and Stirred. I know how that is. You know how that can be, I right? I do, I do. Sometimes I, the simplest things. I've been on a, a movie set. I understand now how complicated it can all get very quickly. You're hearing the voice of one of my good friends, a new friend, actually. Uh, he's a film director, a filmmaker. He's an author. I, I have had the, the privilege of reading a few of his books, Orangutan, That's That, and his latest book, which is not out yet, by the way. It comes out in December. The Writing Irish of New York, and his film, The Emerald City, which is available on iTunes all over the world and also on Amazon here in the US, Colin Broderick. Colin, thank you for coming. Thank you for having me on the uh, show, Nigel. It's honored, it's, honored to be here. It's our, our privilege. I'm Nigel Barker. I've got Tom Astor with me, my co-host, and we like to shake things up on Shaken and Stirred, and that's exactly what we're going to do with Colin, because Colin, your books, your films... They are very personal. They are about your life. Yes. They are really an expose. When I watched your film, I, I felt almost like I had to look away once in a while because I thought like I was prying, almost looking into your life in a way that, because I know you as a, uh, your friend. Yes. And I didn't necessarily know all the things about you. Reading the pages, I felt, wow, I, I've, I've, I'm getting to know you in ways that are very personal, very intimate. What is it like to write a book like that? Well, when I wrote Orangutan, I was coming off like a 10-year drunk, so I was in really, really bad shape. It was, I started in uh, 2006, and uh, I was in a, an apartment in Hell's Kitchen, fifth floor walk-up. Uh, I weighed 115 pounds. True story, I was bumming cigarettes and dollar bills in Times Square to keep going, and everybody had just sort of given up on me at that point. And I, a friend showed up and said, we got to get you out of here. And he took me to a farmhouse upstate to dry out and get myself together again to sort of save my life. <clears throat> and uh, I started writing Orangutan the first day I was up there. I just got out a notebook and I just started, okay, here's my life for the last 20 years. And I just started writing and it became the memoir. It's, um, a, it's, it's, a, it's, I mean, it just the, the book <clears throat> itself, I mean, the name Orangutan, I mean, is it just immediately go, you're like, what? You know, <laughs> what's this going to be about, right? Um, and, and then when you sort of delve into it, it, it just is, I, I mean, for me, I felt both chilled and it, it kind of reminded me of aspects of my own life too, which is, you know, strange enough. And I, you know, I want to talk about addiction and certainly on Shaken and Stirred. We drink a lot. We make cocktails all the time. In fact, Tom, what are we drinking right now? Drinking uh, Virgin. 
Mary. Well, I'm drinking of Bloody Mary. <laughs> Colin's drinking of Virgin Mary. And I'm joining Colin <laughs> with a Virgin Mary, by the way. And what's in this particular Bloody Mary? Yeah, well, maybe the Clamato. So it's, a, it's a sort of classic Bloody Mary mix. Horseradish, Clamato, Worcester sauce, Tabasco, celery salt, if we had it. Um, and by the way, Clamato... When we say clamato, we're not talking about tomato or tomato but, or, or clamato. But clamato is, in fact, what is it? It is clam juice with tomato juice mixed together kind of thing. Yeah. Incredible. Very popular um, in Mexico. Very popular in Mexico, yeah. well, I, as our cameraman is, is actually telling us right now. Nah, yeah. Thank you. It's one of his favorites. Is that where it comes from? <laughs> it comes from it's Mexico. I did not know that. There we ah. go. Well, we tomato. learn something new every day on Shaken and Stirred. But, you know, talking about this... Addiction is something which affects so many people. I know in my own family, we have several members of my family who are AA. Mm -hmm. um, my younger sister, Marianne, um, took her life oh. um, in, in large part because of addiction. And she was addicted to medication. Mm -hmm. And she, coming off the medication, couldn't handle it. And took her life that's so, terrible I, I certainly understand uh what that, I, I i did seven years uh in my 20s where i was not drinking and uh i was going to AA meetings and sort of presenting myself as this sober person and dry drunk huh? a dry drunk I, I got into a car accident i was hit by a car stone cold sober outside my old local bar and broke my back wound up in a body brace for a year and the doctor at the time thought I was never going to walk again. And they gave me pills. So I got hooked on pain pills. pills. Pain pills. Co what was you, it? Code, just anything with coding. Percocet, uh, Vicodin, whatever, whatever, whatever I could get my hands on. And within a very short space of time, I had three doctors who were prescribed. I had them. I had three doctors lined up who were prescribing me pills. And basically, I was a pharmaceutical addict for six or seven years while I was not drinking. And then at the age of 31, I picked up a drink and went for eight years. But I certainly understand the, 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 the pill addiction thing. It's brutal. And so, and, and in orangutan, you talk a lot <clears throat> about the pill addiction. I mean, mm -hmm. that, that come, you, there's a lot of story about that. Take me back to how you became addicted. Because I remember, for example, with my older sister, who is AA, and you know, she talks about how she first got addicted and and it's quite shocking actually she would she tells stories about how my parents would have dinner parties and she would come down and she would be about 12 13 years old and at the, all the drinks were left with little bits of drink in the bottom of the glasses and she would pick them up because she saw the adults having so much fun with them the night before and she would notice them having you know giggling and everyone wanted a drink when anyone arrived at a party they went to the bar and she was a 12 year old and she had noticed all of this and i can see with my son he notices I come home often and I'll make a gin and tonic. It's mm. almost like I need it. Meanwhile, I'm telling him he can't have any more soda or juice, yet I'm allowed to have this drink. And it's clicking in his head. Mm. And I'm beginning to be much more aware of what I'm doing in front of him or in front, or just in front of myself, in fact. Right. But my sister would come down and finish off all the drinks. And we didn't know this. And so she was actually an alcoholic by the age she was sort of 15, 16 years old. And I think that's sort of how it is. That's the great mystery of it. You know, I grew up in a family of six and I would classify myself as the only alcoholic. So I have brothers who had the same childhood experience who did not become alcoholics. So there's, I, I do feel like uh, I've come to the understanding that I've never met uh, an addict or an alcoholic who wasn't in some way 
medicating themselves against some uh, childhood pain or trauma or existential anxiety. Uh, and that's sort of how it begins. Uh, why it happens to some people and not some other people is a great mystery, one that I've tried not to ask myself too much about because I've just decided, because I tried so, so hard to be a normal drinker and failed, I just accepted that I'm just somebody who can't have one drink safely. I can't do it. It's impossible. I'm, I'm a lunatic. So when I take one drink... Does that one drink turn you into a lunatic or is it you just forget and then you're onto your next drink and the next drink? So as soon as I have the first drink, like for instance, when I, when, I didn't, when I picked up a drink after eight years of not having a drink, I had gone to AA, I had gone to therapy, I would read every self-help book, I knew exactly what I needed to do to quit drinking. Intellectually, I understood what the disease was. Intellectually, I understood that if it got real bad, I could but just go emotion, back. Emotionally, you hadn't. Yeah, I could just go back to a meeting. But emotionally, and that's the dry drunk aspect of it is the, is the, is the emotional process, yeah. isn't it, that, 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 that creates the dry drunk that you think, you know, you've been doing the meetings, um, paying, the, you know, doing, doing what you're supposed to, ticking all the boxes. And then what, so what triggered the eight after eight years? I just was going through a period in my life where I was bored with my life and figured maybe I was just young and crazy at 23 when I quit drinking and maybe now that I was an adult and had all this adult information about alcoholism, I could have a drink. And uh, I had a little used bookstore coffee shop in Riverdale at the time and after everybody went home one night, I closed the door and I made myself an absinthe drink. You know, I lit the sugar and I had a little blue flame. It was all very romantic and I had a drink and I thought, if it doesn't work out, I'll just go to an AA meeting tomorrow. So wait a second, after not drinking for how long? Eight, Eight years. years. You decided to have your first drink be an absinthe. Absinthe, pure absinthe from Prague. Somebody had brought in a bottle of absinthe and I had, I had it by, behind the counter and I thought, if I'm going to do this... You're not messing around, Collie. I am not messing around. <laughs> I'm jumping I, into his character here because <laughs> I, you see him in his film, City of, uh, Emerald City, rather. You see him in his film, Emerald City, having a drink at the bar, <laughs> and it's the next scene, you are just a mess. In fact, you try to deck your employer, and it, it is. And your, right. your name is Collie in the film. That is correct. I mean, it is very personal. It, it is an extraordinary film, actually. I was moved enormously because it is. it looks like it's it's not almost a documentary aspect, oh, yes. feel to yeah. it. Um, but I don't want to pull you away from what you're saying. Jump back in. Because so so I, I had this idea that I would have a drink. If it didn't work out, I would go to an AA meeting. I had the drink. I thought it tasted nice. Oh, I'm okay. I took the rest of the bottle. I drove home. Two weeks later, I'm stabbed buying cocaine on White Plains Road at two in the morning, drunk out of my mind, and I'm in my car with a plastic bag underneath the stick shift to catch the blood that's flowing out of my arm, and I'm thinking, okay, I can't go back and cop there. So it wasn't like I'm going to go back to a meeting. I'm already insane. After that first drink, I was just off to the races. And how did you get stabbed? I was trying to buy cocaine and some guy said, okay, give me your wallet. And I said, go fuck yourself. And he said, I'm going to stab you. And he pulled out a knife and I said, go fuck yourself. And he stabbed me. And then. <laughs> <laughs> did he get your wallet? No, he did not. I wouldn't give him my wallet. Well, so, so he cut me three times. And eventually I said, listen, I'll give you 
the money that's in the wallet, but I'm keeping the wallet. And it was insane because he took the money and he's running off down the street yelling at me, you're crazy, you're crazy. Meanwhile, he just stabbed me, and I'm like yeah. bleeding. Well, I, and, and, well, of course, because he's like, I was going to stab you. I told you I would stab you. I stabbed you. And you're like, I just want exactly. the wallet. Take the money. Exactly. Just give me the leather. Yes, exactly. Was it sentimental? Well, I had my ID and my driver's license and all that stuff. And I was just like, I, and my bank card. It's like, I'm going to give this guy all this stuff. So like, we talk about addictive personalities and, and, and people talk about them. And there is a sort of a myth around it. Is there such a thing? <clears throat> as an addictive personality. And I know you said earlier, you're not sure that you want to get into that aspect of it because I do feel that there is, some people say, oh, I don't have an addictive personality. Other people like yourself, you could argue, do. Absolutely. Or, or is it a personality? Or is it person, or is it a chemical? I don't know. It's like which came first, the, 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 the egg or the chicken. I don't know. All I know is- The cockerel came e first. And I can't even speak for other people. I just know, because you go to an AA meeting or you're around other addicts, and I've met people who felt they were drinking too much after having a glass of wine every night. It just So the whole thing is, if it's making your life unmanageable, if you feel you have a problem, you probably have a problem. Mm. And really, when it comes right down to it, in my experience, it's not about the alcohol or the drugs. It's really about our thinking and about who we are. And it's about the mental anguish more to do it than anything else. You take the drink and that sort of triggers the madness. And well, the, it's a, the, the, a lot of time, do, do you find, do you, have you seen this in the AA? I've, again, I've got family members here in AA. I'm drunk for 12. My brother hasn't drunk for, I think, 12 years. Lived in New York. The, the, there's a sort of element of you know things like AA have been incredibly instrumental in actually saving people's lives. But at the same time, what I what I see is a lot of um a, a lot of people who don't haven't don't go through the process of dealing with the emotional intelligence aspect of addiction. So you can go to an AA meeting and yes, it will keep you from drinking. You can do five a week and you can bang 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 and it's the dry drunk thing again. It's what you're not dealing with is you're not sitting down and 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 actually processing why you are like you are in the first place. Do you, is that something that you've gone through? Absolutely. So there's a guy called uh, Gabor Mate. I don't know if you've ever read any of his stuff, but he says that he's never met an alcoholic or an addict who was not medicating some kind of childhood pain, and that's sort of how I feel about it. Uh, for me, after I wrote Orangutan, which is a drinking memoir, which covers you know me coming to America, getting off the boat, and sort of drinking for 20 years as a construction worker, a carpenter, and trying to formulate this life as a writer, but really just becoming insane. But I was sober four years, the book was out, and I was still insane. I still was completely and utterly wrapped up in my own head, my own madness. And my agent actually at the time said, you got to write about your childhood. You, sh you just can't give an American audience a book like Orangutan and then not say why this is happening to you. And it really forced me to go back and think about my childhood and my life growing up in Northern Ireland during the Troubles and sort of confronting my childhood and taking it all out of the closet, unpacking all of it and looking at it. And it was a brutal experience. Emotionally, emotionally. It, that was a way, way more brutal emotional experience than writing Orangutan. Orangutan, I just wrote it. It was like, here's this wild ride that happened. That's that I get into the pain of why uh, and I sort of confronted for the first time who I was Yourself, as a person yeah. and my own identity. 
So let's talk about that trauma. <clears throat> let's talk about that stat because it, it goes back to your childhood. And there are you talk about obviously growing up in Northern Ireland, and you were were you not um, present during an IRA bombing at one point? I was uh, not present during an IRA bombing, but uh, I was very close to a lot of. Uh, uh, I lost friends uh, who were shot. Uh, I lost friends who were killed in bombs. Uh, my, I, I, the, the Loch Gall, I talk about it in the movie and I talk about it uh, in um, the book. Uh, there were some friends of mine who were killed in Loch Gall. And I didn't think about that until much later where you're going to these wakes where there are open coffins and these boys have their faces shot off and these are but that's a very different knew. scenario right this was actually this wasn't that wasn't an ira at all was it that was the british soldiers british soldiers killing shot IRA, young ira guys yes, yes so exactly so that's a and again this is one of those interesting things i think that you know obviously the history itself yes. of all of this is very important because it's when you if you grow up in england you hear one side of the story yes and you obviously growing up in northern ireland you would have be aware of certainly the other side of the story, if not both sides of the story. Right. And I, I myself as well grew up um, and was, was present during actually two bombings. In fact, one that went outside of our house and blew out every single window. Yes. Uh, our next door neighbor was Michael Heseltine, uh -huh. who was an English politician. And they blew up, they tried to blow up his Mercedes Benz and actually got the wrong one. The Mercedes Benz was outside our house and went four stories high, blew out every single window in our house and wheels of the Mercedes went flying through our um, living room and actually there was a wheel print all the way around wow. the side of our wheel. Wow. And we were in the house at the time. My God. Um, and but it, it, was part of our, it was part of growing up. My, my, was sister was growing listening, up. my sister was listening to the band in Regent's Park with the day when they blew up for the horses and the bandstand. Yes. And the, she was listening to the bandstand. So it's, it's, it's funny sitting in there. Absolutely. With, with this kind of, in this context. Yes. You're sitting there talking about Michael Hesseltine. Well, just the You're fact that I, I feel like it, it's amazing that we've come this far that a guy from Northern Ireland is sitting down with two guys from England and we could have this conversation mm. without anybody getting a punch. <laughs> well, I can tell you now, first of all, I'm not about to punch you. I love you. Uh, but second of all, um, I'm actually, my grandmother is a... Is a is, is an O'Reilly from she's Dublin. An she's okay. an O'Reilly from Dublin. Irish. So I've got a bit of Irish in me. And if okay. you come to New York you, <laughs> or even America, you yes. find out that everyone's got a little bit of Irish in them. Absolutely. Well, for me, the amazing thing about writing that stat and confronting and going back, number one, I didn't realize to the extent that I'd grown up in a war. And when I wrote the, the memoir, I had people at home saying, oh, it's exaggerated. Sure, nothing really happened at all. And when I say I wasn't around a bomb, I heard plenty of bombs. They were close enough that I heard them. There, mm. it, it was, it was just it was part of the that. environment. I lost people who were shot uh, and assassinated. And, and uh, you know, you'd be in the, the, the local disco and you'd be having your beer and they'd be like, okay, there's a bomb in here. Everybody run. And like, we were so accustomed to it that you wouldn't leave your drink. You'd be like, I'm drinking this drink. <laughs> that might have been the alcoholic part. I think other people might have actually left their drink. You may that be might right. be your, you may your be right. recollection. You may be right. I think I would leave my drink. But Although, that happened. That happened fairly on a fairly common basis. That sort of stuff, and you really didn't think very much about it. And it wasn't until I looked at that stuff as an adult and thought, "Hold on a second, this is just not normal. That's a that's not a normal way to grow up." Yeah. 
But right? did that drive you to drink? You, you think that was the issue or you don't think so? Uh, I, what was I, the childhood trauma you think specifically or is it all these things? All, all of it. I, I think growing up, uh, part of my uh, thing that I sort of came to understand much later in my sobriety was I've always been an artist at heart. I've always been a writer at heart. And I grew up in an environment that didn't nurture that in any way at all. Uh, not just that, but like we were beaten at school, badly beaten at school. Uh, in, in primary school, I had a teacher who literally beat me unconscious in front of the class, like brutal trauma. And when I looked at all that stuff as an adult, I could see that. Why did that happen? How did that happen? Uh, I think a lot of very angry teachers, teachers who just, you know, that sort of corporal punishment it was, was, it was legal. Uh, yeah, I could. I mean, I was caned. I wasn't beaten unconscious, but I was yeah. certainly caned at school. Gym shoes, slipper. We got. I mean, it was still legal in those days. You it was still legal. It was still legal. It was complete. And then one, from one day to the next, the amazing thing from one day to the next, you can try to do that to a kid now, and you, you, oh you, you're, you get put away for five. I, years. I have kids. You mm. just would never yeah. think to lift your hand to your kid. It's just such a bizarre thing. And when I see kids, but now, some people do. I mean, that is one. You're, that is interesting. You yes. should say that because. You know, we, we talk about addictive personalities as well, and there are personality traits where I, because I look at my own family, and my father was a violent man, and he would get drunk and he would hit when he got angry. Mm -hmm. if he didn't like it, and there was a time when he, and this is not something I've really talked about much myself personally on mm -hmm. that, but th th there was a time when he got very drunk and he shouted at me and he thought I had done something to my sister, and I said I hadn't, mm -hmm. and he felt that I had challenged him, and he went to raise his hand to hit me. And I actually tripped and fell down the stairs. Wow. And when I got to the bottom of the stairs, falling the entire way, I clipped something off a, there was a mantelpiece and it came down and it struck me on the face and cracked my head open. And he had to take me to hospital. And um, he decided he would do it. My mother wouldn't have anything to do with it. She's like, no, you take him. And I remember sitting there and um, the, 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 the nurses who were sewing my eye up above my eye said, how did this happen? And I could see my father look at me and they looked at him and they looked at me and they were like, how did this happen? And I said, oh, I fell. And he looked and he just sort of looked down and looked back up at me and kind of blinked. And the nurse said, are you sure? And then looked at him and she could tell. I knew mm -hmm. that she knew what had happened. Um, but, you know, my sister, who was also beaten, unfortunately, she reacted in a very different way. For her, it drove her alcohol and it drove mm -hmm. her to do yes. things like that. and yes. when i hear her stories you know she when she talks about it she talks about you know she talked about rather um what happened to her and how she, she was looking for escape and how with alcohol she felt euphoric and she it, the whole thing Absolutely, disappeared yes. but that wasn't yes. my feeling that right. wasn't my reaction mm -hmm. you know and, and i don't think i've ever drunk for that reason it's amazing uh, and and i see that in my own family as I, i've said you know how some people escape that is just that's the great mystery but if you just happen to be programmed that way, uh, having the first drink mm. at any age is like turning that key also, to euphoria. But also the, the medication, you know, it's a bit like heroin. I, th I remember talking to a, a, a psychoanalyst once who was talking, who's in, it dealt with teenage addicts. And he, him, he's saying that um, heroin does exactly what it says on the tin, you know, you, you smoke a bit of heroin, you inject a bit of heroin, and it takes you straight out. You, you are that's you're correct. Right, you're in the most wonderful place. All your problems have just melted away, and you're just in this place. You're in a comfort zone that you don't normally feel in your day to day life. The problem being, obviously, like all these things, like drinking, like heroin, like cocaine, whatever it is, your your whatever your poison particularly is. Once the, once the effects wear off, your problems are still there. 
Magnified. 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 By, by, uh, by, by, by now you have this yes, physiological, you, you now have this physical yes. addiction because your body is now craving something. Now so your worse. mind, the one thing you haven't done is, is, is solved your, the, the emotional side of right. the issue. And you, and you brought it up a little while ago about like people going to meetings and uh, maybe not getting, maybe not really recovering from mm. their own illness. And I uh, am a big uh, believer that for me, how it has worked is I, the biggest freedom for me was in confronting my childhood pain. And was I beaten mm. as a kid? Absolutely, I was beaten, beaten as a kid and coming to terms with the fact that you know, getting past the anger and forgiving my parents and forgiving the teachers and realizing that was an environment that I grew up in and those people were just reacting to an environment that they grew up in. That was their mm. normality. If you look at the people like my age now in Ireland, they don't beat their kids. Most people don't beat their kids because it's just not the thing. We understand now that that has consequences. But 20 years ago, 30 years no, ago, normal. 40 years well, ago, school. I mean, but they, we, people were surviving in a different way. They didn't, have the, they didn't have the information age to sort of go, oh, that's, this, this is the long-term effects that happen. Like in Northern Ireland, like nobody in my family even went to college when I was growing up. Education wasn't. What so, do you it think that's today. going to mean there's going to be less addicts then in the long run, or if people are going to react no, differently? No, uh, <laughs> not at all. I think. I think. In fact, we are approaching an age where the addiction to technology and our screens has far surpassed anything that we saw with. Uh, alcohol or drugs and that's the real addiction i look at my kids and that's the big thing how do i keep them do you off think the, the problem is do you think the problem is again talking to i was talking to a doctor um psychoanalyst a union woman who, who who um helped me a lot actually at one point say completely saved my life i went to see her when i, I didn't know what to do mm -hmm. um and i and i asked her a question once i said what still surprises you know about the human condition i mean studied this you're a professor you know you're teaching all the universities you know your stuff you're in your late 60s, you know, what still surprises you about the kind of human condition. And she turned around and said, the fact that 98% of the population live in a state of self-deception on a daily basis. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's what makes the world go around right now. And, uh, and we're being fed this whole, I, I actually started writing a third memoir this year. Uh, I stopped for at one point, I, it was so ridiculous. I just said, okay, I got to get rid of all my apps and get off social media because I found myself for five, six hours a day, I'm glued to the screen. But you are very good at Twitter. <laughs> you are very, very good at it. I, I follow you and you make me laugh and you say That's outrageous funny. things and you should follow Colin Broderick on Twitter That's just funny. because he is very, very poignant and, and basically speaks his heart. But, you, you know, you talked about writing these books mm -hmm. and memoirs and you're writing another one and, you know, your most recent book, which is about to come out, The Writing Irish of New York. Um, how cathartic is it for you? And, and what, how has that been a process? So it's so bizarre when I think, you know, just a few days ago, I had this conversation with somebody. 11 years ago, I was in an upstate jail because I, after they tried to sober me up upstate, I actually started drinking again after I started writing orangutan, got caught behind the wheel of a car for like the third or fourth time, and they just locked me up. I was in, they gave me a couple of months in an upstate jail and you would think that would sober me up. I was 39 years of age uh, and, you know, I didn't have, I practically almost had the last person in my life who was still there for me. He almost turned away at that point because I was like, what do you do with this guy? And for me to think, 
at 39, I was in a jail learning how to make jailhouse hooch, <laughs> which I did. What is jailhouse hooch? You can make jailhouse hooch in like a baggie. You get like a little baggie and you get some fruit. It's an alcoholic drink. Alcohol. You make some alcohol in the in prisons. You get Sorry, excuse me for not drunk. knowing what jailhouse hooch yeah. was. So I'm, I'm learning something here every day too. <laughs> That's what we should have made as the drink, jailhouse hooch. Jailhouse hooch, what I was thinking in The Great Escape, they were doing the potato, making out of yes. potatoes, weren't they? So the Irish, get, actually. Yeah. Well, this is the Irish were making That's it out of big the, drink, the but potato, potato hooch. Absolutely. And it's very potent and you just make it, you would just store it in your, in a, you, we had to try and do it without getting caught, obviously. Uh, I, I wasn't aware that had I been caught, I would have been in there for another year. <laughs> at the time but uh, it was insane and then the fact that I was there and now 11 years later I, I, my third book is coming out in a couple of months I live in a beautiful house in Woodstock with, no, I know. with a wife and two kids I mean you, what you've done is quite extraordinary to turn it around so it, going back to the sort of the catharticness of the books it has was that the, the the medicine was the medicine for you getting it out talking about it writing about it because for not, some people it's you know they're not that they're very, they're more private I guess but yes. for you perhaps it is telling people I mean you are an open book you know totally. excuse the pun I mean you yes. really truly are and yeah. So how does that work? I mean, what does well, that? Well, I, I felt, I for me, I felt like uh, it, it really became this thing for me. Was I felt like I needed to open it all up and get it out there. And once I realized, like this book, Orangutan, you know, Random House published that went two thousand nine, and people are still writing to me from all over the world mm. saying, "I just read your book and it's changed my life." And blah, mm. blah, blah, and that's an amazing thing. So then you sort of develop this. I've developed sort of an identity for the first time in my life as this person who is open. So then I write, that's that. So now I've become somebody who is... Enlightened. Can I just interrupt? Enlighten so it's a road to enlightenment. I mean, this is, this is enlightened stuff, isn't it? Being able to, as you said, when you start, you, you know, you're not in the 2% of people who are living in the state of self-deception. When you start writing this stuff and start getting, start getting it out and it becomes truth, the truth is, it, this is the truth. Is that... Absolutely, the truth has been setting me free one day at yeah. a time without question. And the writing for me, and now I'm making movies and I feel like even the movies have become this, both of them are very autobiographical and I can't sort of, I, I, I joke that the next thing I do has to be something that's not about me. <laughs> How about your about your kids, maybe? Well, this is it. My kids are in the movie. The kids yeah. are in the movie, and his family and his and friends wife, are in the movie. My wife Rachel's plays my wife in oh. the movie, and everyone has their actual name. Great. Everyone has their name. The truth, it's the truth. crazy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, it, that was one it's of those the truth. things. It's the kind of, it is. The thing, isn't it? You can't. Why, why fictionalize the, the, It's a bizarre thing to. And people would sit. We did these screenings all over America. For we did screenings from London to New York to LA. Uh, with Emerald City and then afterwards we'd have these Q&As and people would be like hold on a second that was your wife and that that's your daughter and that was your son at the end and, and actually was... recorded in the places for example his wife Ray who is a yoga instructor at Strala Absolutely. and it, it, it plays out in the film she's a yoga instructor at Strala she's and they film it at great. Strala <laughs> I mean you really are getting a true look yeah. so you don't that doesn't happen very often most movies in America and in the world are dramatized to an extent where you know it's someone who's better looking plays you and you know the locations are more glamorous and filmed in a certain way but that is something that I loved about this there is it's so it is a grittiness there's a truthfulness you you feel it to that the beginning when you first start watching it you may think to yourself 
oh, is this amateur? And mm-hmm. I mean that in the yep. correct totally. way in as much totally. as because you're so used to seeing something so polished, so perfect. The lighting is so kind of like Hollywood mm-hmm. that, you know, that's what you perceive to be the rest of the world except your own life. Mm-hmm. Of course, but then you start looking at it and I got sucked in People in a way do. that's what happened. that yeah. I was watching a true story t- unfolding. And by the end of it, that was, it was so beautiful, and, and so I was so taken by it. Thank you. Um, it it been very well, very well produced, very well directed, and, and very honest. Thank you. It's been uh, an amazing experience to have the movie as well accepted. It was a huge gamble for me to go off and make a feature movie. You know, having never made a feature movie, having never worked around a, a movie production or have any sort of experience with that to just say, okay, I'm making a movie. And people were like, you're crazy. You're not making a feature movie. That's nuts. And then I just did it. And then people show up and they expect this sort of amateur hour and they're just blown away. And we're sitting in theaters where people are weeping and they're laughing. And it's just this amazing mm. experience. It's been incredible. You've gathered an interesting group of people around you. You mentioned, and I've been to your parties at your house, and there are A-list actors and like Josh Brolin hanging out, like just casual. Um, you know, you've got sort of boxers who are there and, you know, hang, again, hanging out and these guys appear in your films. And, but they're all incredibly loyal. Where did the loyalty come from? I have, it's it's so amazing. Uh, you know, I realize that the life that I've built as a sober person has been built one sort of brick at a time uh, in the last 11 years. And what's happened is I've just sort of developed these friendships with people. I call them my tribe now, and you've become part of my tribe. And what I found is I like nice people. And if I had one, you know, sort of thing that I like to think about my life and how I treat people and how I like other people to treat people is just to be nice. It doesn't matter if you're famous or if you're rich or whatever it is. The loyalty is not, it's just really about having people around who are good people. And all those people you mention are just really decent people and just really care about people. And that's that's something that's very important to me now. Well, it's enormously inspiring because you, you, you talk about being in jail, you talk about being stabbed, you talk about making potentially alcoholic beverages in a prison. You know, you had one friend who would hardly stand behind you. And you go from that to living in a gorgeous house, being married to a beautiful woman, having really a, 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 you know, a, a lovely child. Two, uh, two, two, two kids, of course. Yes, yes. Two kids. But yes. so your previous life. Yes. You know, you have uh, your daughter... Um, and so my daughter was born. Uh, I w- I got married just after I quit uh, drinking to my ex bartender, and we had a kid together. And that's uh, she's married again now. We're very good friends. And uh, my daughter Erica will be ten, you know, in a, next month. But my kids have never seen me drunk. They don't know that part. Apart from like you know the hearing stuff about my life, they've never experienced me drunk or hungover or that's a whole other they'll read they'll read the books later and like, well they'll read the books but also there's these questions where you know kids grow up and they do they are very observant mm-hmm. and i'm often sort of wondering for example like when my son says to me you know daddy every time you come home you make yourself a gin and tonic and i'm like okay that's, that's what james bond does right? <laughs> i'm like perhaps <laughs> yeah. well, what, what we learned earlier actually what we learned what we learned also today is that gin um created 
for to in the 1650s for to help with premenstrual PMS. Oh, really? Apparently, allegedly. The painkiller. The origins of gin were, were as of anyway. Sorry. Oh, so I just I'm just looking at him, thinking, coming home every evening, mm. making himself a gin. It's because of PMT. Because <laughs> premenstrual. But, but here's the thing: if I could have a drink like that, I would do it. I can't. Right. Like no, my, my wife Rachel will have a drink. She loves to have a glass of wine or a pint of Guinness or whatever it is. She is the true social drinker. She's somebody who can have a drink and is not tempted. She's not even tempted mostly to have a second or third drink, which just blows my mind. There's not this sort of craving that kicks in, I need more. My concern being, though, that I don't know what my son is. Right? Right. I don't know right. what my daughter is. And I, so, what, I, hmm. you, you know, you question, hmm. you know, what should you, do, should you do as an adult? Do you stop your own life and live it a certain way? Or are they going to find it anyway, regardless of how you behave? They're just questions. I mean, yeah. these are, you know, totally. you, you can't help but feel guilty sometimes because, you know, I don't want my, my son to think when he, when he thinks of me that that's the thing that comes to mind. Although when I think of my father, you know, there are some moments where I remember coming home Every day, and one of the things we would do, and I'm one of six children, would go to his study, knock on the door, and normally I'd walk in, I would see his back, because it was always the same time, and he knew it was, and it was like five o'clock, and it was this five o'clock somewhere, right? But he would be making himself a gin and tonic. And the clinking of the ice, the stirring of it, the, the smell of the room, the, you know, the leather sofa that I would sit on. Now no, I want a drink. Right. <laughs> <laughs> but when was, you put it like that. <laughs> I know. Well, there is this sort of romance to it and nostalgia yes, to it. Absolutely. But he would turn around and talk to me and, and it, you know, and it, just the lemon in the drink too. And the, 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 the whole process. And I've become him. Mm, right. You know, right. here I am realizing that that's my memory of my father. Yes. And I, and I hated his drinking. By right. Right. It was a problem. He uh. had, could not control his drinking. And he would drink an entire bottle of gin or an entire bottle of whiskey and then get crazy. So do you stop after the first one? Do you have two? You I have might three? have one. I certainly would have obviously my one, but I might have two. Yeah. But I don't drink more than you're that. Not, you're, not, you're not falling around the house. Never. Or not be also, kissing your kids all or not sloppy. Be beating, or beating the shit out of them by the sound of them. No, I've never I'd, raised I'd, my I'd, hand I'd, to my child, any of my oh. children ever. I'm the same. and and But you you don't strike me. There's something about an addict or an alcoholic and I can usually pick it up right away and usually I understand because I have an innate sort of uh, connection to people with that I mean really I, I stopped drinking place. I stopped drinking regularly every year for periods of time yeah two months a month few weeks because I want to or because something happens or I'm really busy working mm -hmm. and I need to focus focus mm -hmm. and I can't I just my evenings are taken up and I know that if I have a drink I might chill out and relax and I just don't want to I need to be really razor razor right. sharp so and so that there are times when that happens but it's it's less about me in this scenario it's more about how I might Absolute, affect my yeah, child how do, what's yeah. his vision of me mm -hmm. how acceptable is it going to be for him because of the way I behave it's a funny thing with kids, though. You know, I, I find myself being so self-conscious. Rachel and I talk about this all the time. We're so self-conscious about how we raise our kids now in the world. And it becomes this sort of hyper-consciousness where you think, are, are we all just, have we all gone over to the other side where we're all, because really at the bottom, you know, the end, the end of the day, we don't have any control over who they are. They're people. No. And they have their own personalities and they're going to do whatever it is they're going to do in the world. 
And really, your life shouldn't have to stop for them. It's great that you're conscious of how you appear to them. And I think that's all you can really well, do. You can lead them to water. You can lead those to water. And you can never summer. really protect them, right? It's like you, there's no way of fully protecting your kids. The world is just not that safe. So we do what we can and we turn the rest over and just hope and pray that they're safe and that they're okay. But, for example, with things like cigarettes, is another very addictive um, substance, tobacco, oh God, nicotine. Yeah. And you know, <clears throat> now, of course, the kids are not smoking cigarettes like they used to. When I remember when I was a kid, we were all you know, sneaking cigarettes around the back of the garden shed. And I smoked school. for 30 years. Absolutely. And 30 years. Tom still has Crazy. a cigarette yeah. once in a while. But... You know, that is being changed and kids are now vaping. Yes. And this sort of vaping concept, which is now sweeping the schools and everyone is doing it and they're very young. As young as sort of 9, 10, 11, 12 years old vaping at schools. And my kids are coming home and saying, talking about it. And I know that they're talking about it with me because we're a very open family. Mm -hmm. But it's also their way of trying to see how judgmental I might be about it. What is my, What are my thoughts? Just, right. They're just laying it out there. Like this kid's, vaping this kid's you know but it's only water in there and what is nicotine and yeah you know and it's it's why is it that society treats addicts for example you know we, we treat addicts as criminals yes in many ways yes a lot you know. of them are i was <laughs> well you, one can absolutely become. and it's very it was that was a weird thing for me in sobriety to go hold on a second you know this thing about people being treated like criminals i was a criminal that's what I was. I was a criminal. I was acting outside of the law and I was caught and I was punished. It wasn't the law's fault. It wasn't the police fault. It was me. I broke the law. But the right? addiction itself is like a sickness then. It is. And I think part of the huge part of how it's dealt with in uh, this country and of course, a lot of the laws are built uh, along racial lines. So this is not cool. We're going to lock up these people for doing this. And it usually winds up, of course, being an Af African-American or Hispanic community that winds up behind bars. Uh, so we criminalize and along those lines. Sure. And it's very convenient that, the, that that's sort of where the line is. And the big problem, of course, is we've just created this enormous monster of a machine where it becomes about locking everybody up and not really about looking not at helping. the problems. Not, not helping. helping at no. all. Right? But when addicts are no. sick people, then, if you say the addict is someone who's got an illness, almost a sickness, their, addic their addiction in itself is causing them to act out, should we be not be treating them less like criminals and more like sick people and sort of trying to think of a cure because you can go to jail and still then pop out the other end and be just the same criminal as you were when you went in? That would be wonderful if, well, that, have, was, if you, that were possible. You have, <laughs> well, you have cancer research, you yeah. have AIDS, galas, you have the Alzheimer's society. You have, where are the galas for addicts? I just feel like, you know, we, when this issue comes up around like us jailing all the addicts, uh, it's such an enormous problem now in this country. How many people are in, in, in jail? Also, and how many people, my, my father's involved in prisons in England and 80%, I think his, his statistic is 80% of people who are in jail, and, I mean, this is in, yes. in England, probably translate over here, shouldn't be, I mean, are mentally ill and shouldn't be there. Absolutely. Um, well, well, I mean, the twenty percent of the twenty percent of the people. So his point: twenty percent of the people in jail are actually criminals and should be in jail. Because it's a business. Yeah. 
And, and, and here's the thing. Most people in jail are not addicts. They got caught doing something stupid. Like the mar- marijuana laws in this country for years ensured that people went to jail for a very, very, very long time for a very small amount of marijuana. And now we have this thing where it's being legalized and people are like, oh, it's actually really healthy if you smoke it for certain things. And people are still sitting in jail for the rest of their lives for owning that. And I just find that, you know, you take a look at our political situation in this country and it's like, how far away from are we from figuring out this if this is the guy that's in the White House and this is our current political situation? Well, we can't even get the most mundane things taken care of anymore. Tell us what you really feel, <laughs> Colin. I think summed it up. It? Desperate. It's a strange time in history where we are more intelligent and more informed than we have ever been in the history of mankind. And in some ways, we are way more backward than we have ever been. It's like common sense has just gone out the window. And One people, step forward, two steps back. And we're just so distracted. People are just so distracted. And as long as that cell phone light stays on, you know, we'll get through it. And we're so bom- bombarded with like the, the the terrible thing that happened this morning. And we're like, oh my God, how could that possibly have happened? How could Kanye be in the Oval Office hugging the president? And, you know, and then two seconds later, there's something way more ridiculous. Mm. And we've forgotten about that. And that happens every day now where we're so distracted fix. that we yeah. can't well, even... You're, you're, again, you're medicating, aren't you? One's medicating one's phone for just to, to, to take yourself off the realities of day-to-day. Again, distraction. Nice, distraction. Distraction. The 98% of people who live in a state of self-deception, you're not sitting there. Someone sitting on their phone getting distracted and using their phone like that is living in a state of self-deception because they're not looking at their own lives. What you're doing is looking at Kanye's Absolutely. life. You're looking at Donald Trump's life. You're looking at Kim Kardashian's ass. Whatever it is, you're taking your fancy that you can... The one thing you're not doing, and is, is, is and it's like addiction, it's like drugs. The one yes. thing you're not doing is looking at your own life. Absolutely. And the state of your own condition. Peace of mind is something I really try to uh, live my life around. I have certain things that I do every day to try and get a little bit of peace of mind. And do I live a peaceful life? I do because I have certain things that I try to do. I pray a little, I meditate a little, I write a gratitude list, I do a little bit of exercise. might not look like it, but I not I have dumbbells bigger than you, <laughs> I'm sorry to say. <laughs> and this is the best I've ever looked. So I'm 50 years old and I feel better than I've ever done, but a lot of it has to do with the, the world that's going on inside my head and how I perceive the world is actually a pretty kind, joyful place with a, a lot of very crazy people sort of running the circus right yeah, now. Glass half full. You talked about Trump. You talked about, you know, obviously so many of the sort of famous people who are out there. There, there, are, we, we, there is something about to be said, though, of how there's a hero worship almost of celebrities who have died from drug overdoses and drinking. And if you look at so many of mm-hmm. the, the most famous <clears throat> people in history, whether it be musicians or what have you, who have had serious... The 27 Club. Uh, it's the 27, 27, 27 Club. And, and so we, we, and we immortalize them with these sort of expressions. Yes. Like it's cool, like it's the way to go. It's like, totally. I'm not going to make it past my, oh my 20s or my yep. 30s. And, and, you know, I'm like, what are we talking about? How, you know, we, we have this sort of dichotomy almost of 
the two worlds that, that, that exist. One that we know is wrong and the other one that we celebrate is sort of literally as the anti-hero, the classic anti-hero. I mean, where does that come from, do you think? Well, it's such a funny thing, right? Because when we're young, we're dealing with having no fear of mortality and the idea of having fun is very wrapped up in partying and going out with your friends and drinking and smoking a joint or whatever it is. And this is, you know, we're being sold that every day. You need to be by a pool in your bikini with a drink and having a great time. So I think it's perfectly natural for people to get into that in their teens and right up into their 20s. Uh, I think what, what's happened now is it's become so pervasive in our culture with uh, Instagram and cell phones and screens that we have forgotten how to sort of mature and talk about the real issues in life. And even what's happening politically gets ground down to sound bites. And, you know, we just move on. It's coming at us so quickly because of what's happening with information that I don't think as human beings we're sort of prepared for what's coming in the next 10 years. The information age, the world has never had this much change. And, you know, as I just started saying a little while ago, I started writing a new memoir to talk about what it's like to be sober. And to start when I started writing the book, I stopped, I, I got rid of all the apps on my phone and I went through a detox for like four days. It was like, I just quit cocaine. I, I remember when that happened. You kind of announced it to the world on Twitter, I think. You sort of said, I'm going to be off for a <laughs> to minute. To my 50 people who follow me on Twitter. Of which I was one of them. I, I began to panic when I heard that you weren't going to be on Twitter anymore. I'm like, oh. really? Oh, no. no wait a second. I, I, I want, I, I, you know, you're one of those people who I go and look for your, if you're not directly there in my feed, I search for what you might have said <laughs> that's, recently. That's incredibly interesting that you said I panicked when you said it. Yeah. It's a bit like when you, tell so a, when you smoke. And you have a friend that smokes. And when you tell someone you're giving up smoking, them. they panic. They will still hand you a cigarette. Now, if they're a really good friend, that's it. And, you, and they're gonna have, they wouldn't offer you a cigarette if they were really good. They panic because that's A suddenly, little bit. Because suddenly yeah. you're, not, you're not smoking. What do you mean you're not smoking? It just, because it makes everybody sort of look at themselves mm. for a second. There we go. And I think, and then what happened was I did. I stayed off for a few months and I, you know, I started writing the memoir. And then I have a new book coming out. And my... Emerald City was just released on Amazon and iTunes. And you're like, I'm living in a world that demands that I engage on social media right now in order to publicize and get the word out. Otherwise, it's just this thing that sits there and nobody will know about it. So I sort of had this conversation with myself. I got to go back on for a few months do this promotion thing with the books and the and the movie and then by january february again i'm probably just gonna but quit. see is that not an excuse though because i even think about this sometimes for example with drink and i will say you know i probably have been drinking too much over the summer we've been having too much rosé mm -hmm. you know and boozy lunches and it's a lot of fun and everyone's having fun in the hamptons you make and, it look really you good know, though. and we enjoy ourselves and we're like but you know what i can't give up now I can't stop now. I can't have a hiatus now because it's mm. fashion week coming right, up right. and everyone's going to be yes. drinking cocktails and yes. I want to be hanging out with everyone at the parties, totally. not the person not having that drink. Yes. And then I think, well, I can't have it. Not, I can't do it not now because there's this party coming up and this wedding and this event. And before I know it, I've filled my entire calendar up with excuses for why I can't actually stop having I a drink. I know. And my wife has said to me, uh, you know, even this morning, she looked at me getting out of the bed. And she said, I can't believe you're on your phone before you get out of bed. Mm. I literally pick it up. And I just, I'm on. Meanwhile, you know. Because I'm an addict. I, I, can't, yeah. I can't do it. And that's your just, you have to do this. Is you have to stop and just look at your wife. 
because you have a very beautiful she wife. Very beautiful. And quite frankly, if you are picking up your phone and touching your phone first before, before you get out of bed, bed. there is a definitely a small problem there. The problem is with me, obviously. Clearly. Yes, clearly. Clearly. So uh, on this subject, first of all, of, of things that we're addicted in, you know, the, the concept of addiction obviously <clears throat> needs to be expanded as far as what the definition of the word addiction means, because it, you can be addicted to so many different things. And you, you talked earlier about running a secondhand book shop. Mm-hmm. And I know that in your book, you talk about having a basement full of books and you collected books. Yes. Do you think that's also can be an addiction that you it, can transfer your addiction to other things? And is that just equally as unhealthy or is it different because it doesn't harm you? It was absolutely uh, an addiction uh, and in the same way that the screen has become for me, an iPhone has become an addictive thing for me. It's like a prop I can have in my hand and it's instantaneous. I'll post this and 200 people will like it and I get a little dopamine hit and I feel good about myself and I don't have to worry about, you know, oh, I don't feel pretty enough or, or I don't have enough money or this is not going away. all of a sudden I'm distracted from my actual life and I'm uh, I, it's like taking a drug and as an addict I can tell you that it is absolutely every bit as addictive as cocaine an iPhone is mm. when I stopped the withdrawal for three or four days was exactly the same as giving up a drug would you be so do you think you will always be addicted to something uh, I, uh, here's the thing. The only thing that I am completely powerless over that wrecks my life is alcohol. Once I pick up a drink, I'm gone. And that destroys everything. It will destroy relationships, uh, my kids. So it's within- management. It's management of the addiction, addictive personality in order to find yourself something that you can be addicted to that is not going to harm you. No, I'm def- I definitely try to steer away from uh, being addicted to anything. And the reason I'm trying to now uh, write the new memoir and, and engage with how I have become addicted to my cell phone was because that is something I don't feel comfortable with. I don't like that I pick up my phone and check it for no reason other than it's in my pocket. I'm on the bus and I just take it out of my pocket and I can scroll through Instagram. Yeah, but luckily, I mean, luckily you have the... um ability to be able to, to recognize that it's not right Absolutely. whereas whereas again how many people are out there who i think it's the biggest problem we're facing right now in mm. with kids and addiction i think it's a way bigger problem than than alcohol and drugs and that's not counting the 200 people last year who died taking selfies by falling off cliffs it's not or even whatever. counting those people it's like what is this doing and and then i also think are we just fighting the eventual sort of marriage of man and machine. Is that Mm. where we're headed in 20 years' time? Are we just going to be part computer and we're going to be somehow plugged into some higher intelligence, which is what your phone is, a higher intelligence. Uh, Speak for yourself. (laughs) (laughs) And I I notice you have the old iPhone as well. (laughs) (laughs) So that's really saying something. This has been shaken and stirred. I'm super excited to have you as a guest, Colin. Your new book, The Writing Irish of New York, published by Lavender Inc., coming out in December of this year. Very excited for that. Um, congratulations with Emerald City, you now available fi- on iTunes. You can find that, and you can find all the information on this stuff on my website, www.colinbroderick.com. And Absolutely. you can pre-order the book and find out about the movie and stuff on there. Fantastic. We would love that. This has been Shaken and Stirred. An honor to have been on the show. Thank you, guys. You're fun. Thank you.